All right, well, this morning we are continuing our series from the book of Acts. And like I said last week, this isn't necessarily a series on the book of Acts um, where we're talking about who the book was written to and when it was written and those kind of things. What we're doing instead is we're looking at some key moments in the book of Acts. And we started by looking at the ascension. Last week we looked at Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And today I want to look at a story that, or an event that um, is a difficult one to understand. In some ways, uh, it may even cause some of us to be somewhat um, bothered by God. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised if some of us here maybe today, uh, especially if you're new to church and you're kind of wrestling with understanding who God is and, and you have this image of God as just loving or you have this image of God from the Old Testament. He's just a God of wrath and, and who caused all these people all this agony. And then when you read this story, in your mind today, you may just be like, see, um, he's, he's just this angry God who just, you know, destroys people at times. And so this, this story, uh, feel free to be bothered by it. Now feel free to be agitated. Feel free to be somewhat confused by it because I think that there's a reason that this is in here because this is an event that doesn't happen very often in especially the New Testament, but this is an event that when we read this, I think it teaches us something that we need to spend some time on this morning. I think that sometimes when we, when we think about the church, um, you know, we see that, every, you know, that the, the struggles that we have today, but when we look at the early church and we start reading in the book of Acts and you see how they had everything in common and they were sharing these things, you get this picture of a church that was really, really doing well. And when you start at the beginning of Acts, and we're going to pick up around chapter 4, end of chapter 4, uh, chapter 5. But prior to this, you begin to see some really amazing things have been going on. There's unity, there's community, there's generosity, there's compassion for one another. Uh, it's pretty much a perfect picture of what the church is supposed to be. But what we discover at this, with this event, that not all was good. Not everything was exactly as it appeared. There's a story of a captain uh, who was crossing the deck of a ship really, really quickly and, and you know, seemingly to be pretty perplexed. You know, he was, he was pretty bothered by something. And so, you know, as, this, as he's crossing over, this lady stops him and she asked him, he says, you know, is everything okay? And the captain replied and he says, the fact is, madam, our rudder is broken. And the woman replies and says, oh, we shouldn't worry too much about that. It's underwater. Most people won't notice. I want to use that image in our heads this morning, a little bit of what could be in the church when we think about sin. Sin is sometimes that thing that is hidden. Most of us here actually take a lot of, make a lot of effort to hide our sin. Most of us here would say, yeah, if there's sin in my life, that's the one thing I do my absolute best to hide. So I want us to just, with that image in mind of the rudder being hidden, let's not worry about it. I want us to think about that, in, in, about sin in that way a little bit this morning and saying, is there, is there the possibility that there's sin in our lives? Is there a possibility that there's sin in the church and that we're not focusing on it? We're not paying attention to it. We're not giving it the time that it, deser that it deserves. Sin in the church is something that, because it's hidden, because it's, it's often pushed aside, we tend to almost leave it be. We tend to almost say, you know what, it's not going to cause that much trouble. But obviously, over the course of time, sin can completely derail the church and take it in a direction that it was never meant to go. 
So turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter, 40, uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 32. And if you have your Bible app, it's on there again. And so please use that if you want. Um, but let me start reading a portion of Scripture here, and then we'll begin to just kind of pull it apart. It says this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possession was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And, the grace, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, and that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sale, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who was in need. Joseph, a Levite of Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, at the beginning of chapter 4, just prior to this, you begin to see that there is minor persecution starting to happen. The church was experiencing some recognition from the authorities, and there was this minor persecution that began to happen. You know, Peter and, and John were called before the Sanhedrin. They were rebuked a little bit. Um, these are the Jewish leaders of that time, and so they were rebuked because they're preaching about a, a dead man who's risen and, and how people need to give their lives over to this person, and obviously they would have been aware of what happened at Pentecost. And so they tell Peter and John, stop the preaching. And so there's this minor persecution, but in the midst of that, the church is doing fairly well. Luke now tells us about what's happening inside the church. And inside the church, everything really looks amazing. The people are selling stuff, and, and there's not a needy person in their midst. Can you imagine for a moment a church in Leamington where if you belong to this church, you don't have any more needs? We're not talking here about everything was just given to you, but everyone was working together. It wasn't just people coming and collecting handouts. It was everyone pulling their weight, everyone doing their part, everyone focused on the one thing, and that is that they were going to completely be obedient to Jesus Christ. So in verse 32, we see that this was a really, you know, an important time in the sense that people didn't see their possessions as something that they really took a lot of time to consider who it belonged to. What they did with their possessions instead is their focus on their possessions was, God has given this to me, and if there's a need, then I'll get rid of my possession in order to help those who are in need. And so that was one of those things that was happening. In other words, people freely chose to give away what they had. They didn't care about, you know, what it meant for them. They were willing to sell whatever they had in order to take care of those who were in need. Instead of holding on to possessions, they shared everything that they had. This generosity didn't go unnoticed, nor did the recognition that people got. So, for example, we have Joseph. We have a guy later on known as Barnabas, who is actually highlighted because of his generosity. Now, there's nothing in the text that indicates that Barnabas wanted to be recognized. But clearly, the, the contribution was so significant that they decided, we need to give this guy recognition, or he was, he was recognized for what he did, and so he sold this land, and he brought the money, and he publicly gave the amount. Now, we can only assume then <clears throat> that people understood and people knew the exact amount of the money. And this is important because of what's going to come in a little bit. So on the one side, you have a man who sold his land and generously gave all the money to the church. And we see that in verse 34 that this happened from time to time. 
People saw a need, people sold what they had, and they took care of the needs that there were within the church. And so this was a, you know, an act of tremendous generosity, and it appeared that it was also recognized by those who were in the church. These acts of generosity caused the church to grow. And it caused them to be this inviting place. It caused them to be a place where people who had needs obviously would have come. Clearly those who were there, or clearly those who were the beneficiaries of this generosity, uh, you know, from the gifts that people gave, also saw this. And they recognized this. And this was, you know, this is the stage now. This is what set the stage for what is about to come next. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, verse 1. So we, on the one hand, we've seen this beautiful act of generosity. Now we see a very different situation. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. On the one side, you have an example of this man who gives generously everything that he received from the land. And now you see a very different example of, this, of generosity. Yes, this person sold a plot of land and donated it to the church, and like Barnabas, they also made the donation publicly. They placed it at the apostles' feet, just like Barnabas did. And they were also recognized for doing good. But there was a twist. Their sin was not in keeping back part of the money for themselves. Their sin was the lie. Their sin was the hypocrisy. The hypocrisy here was that they appeared to donate all of the money that they gave while keeping back some of it for themselves. This couple was re uh, seeking recognition and praise for something that they hadn't done. This couple wanted recognition for the sacrifice that they had not made. Let's continue to read. Verse 3, then Peter said to Ananias, how is, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled you that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to, to human beings, but to God. Now, the question obviously is, how did Peter know? How did Peter know that Ananias had done this? How did Peter know the exact amount that they got from the land and that Ananias only brought a portion of the money and pretended that he had brought all the money? We don't really know how he knew. It could have been that, you know, that maybe there was hearsay. Someone already was talking about how much this guy made. Maybe he was over here bragging about, man, I made so and so much for this land. And then goes to church and only gives a, a smaller portion. Maybe, you know, his face just revealed that he was lying. Maybe Peter was really good at reading the person's face. And maybe the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. We don't really know why. But by asking Ananias why Satan had filled him, for the purpose of lying to the Holy Spirit, we see here that Peter is exposing the spiritual problem, not the money problem. If you're here this morning, please know that this is not about money. This is not about how much money was given. This was not about how little money was given. This is about a spiritual brokenness within this man. This was about so much more than just the money. Ananias was a hypocrite. Ananias was a hypocrite, and he portrayed himself as a generous person who wanted fame without the sacrifice. 
In modern terms, Ananias wanted to be a faithful churchgoer, a good family man, an honest businessman, an honest employee, someone whose talk would match his walk. But unfortunately for him, he was exposed. He wanted to be this person who would receive recognition for something he had never done. He wanted to be seen as someone who had made a deeper sacrifice than he was actually making. And for Ananias, he was completely exposed. See, here's something we need to know, and I'm guessing all of us here already know this. But sometimes we seem to think that this is true when it comes to other people's sin, but not necessarily our own sin. We cannot hide from God. We may be able to, you know, we may not always be able to recognize a faker. We may not always be able to see when someone is, you know, pulling the wool over our eyes, but God is never fooled. We may show up at church as if we truly love and worship Jesus when in fact our personal time at home, the last six days of the week, we haven't really even thought about Jesus. We, he hasn't really been part of our lives in any way. We haven't allowed the Holy Spirit, we haven't allowed God, we haven't allowed Jesus to really guide us in our lives. But then we show up on church and we want to present ourselves as the way we worship in here is the way we worship everywhere. Can I just tell us this morning, God cannot be fooled. And Ananias wanted to go to church and fool everybody, but it didn't work. We cannot hide these kind of sins from God. In the church, we have two types of people. And it can be very hard to distinguish the two by just looking at them. Ananias and Sapphira looked very much like Barnabas. You know, Barnabas had sold a piece of land. And from the casual observer, this looked like exactly the same thing that the couple did. They sold the land, they, they brought it to the church. But deep in their heart, their motive was very different. Their hearts were filled with a love for money and a desire for people's praise. They decided to present a portion of the money but pass it off as if this was the full amount. This is a world apart from the attitude and from the mindset and from the heart with which Barnabas gave. So I want to ask us a few questions this morning. Would you not allow these, would you allow these questions to settle in your heart for a moment and wrestle with Would you not just push them off and dismiss them? But here are just a few questions I want us to wrestle with. Have you ever been tempted to pass yourself off as more spiritual than you really are? Have you ever been tempted to present yourself as being more spiritual than you really are? Here, here's how we do it. Someone sends a text, someone sends a message, someone sends us something and says, hey, here's a need, and we quickly write back, <clears throat> you know, and they say, would you please pray, and you quickly write back, praying. You're not praying. Truth is, you wrote it, and then you forgot all about it. Or if you are, like I am sometimes, I quickly pray so that I can actually say, I prayed. The truth is, I never prayed with the intensity that that prayer request needed. But man, I was able to say, I prayed. Here's another one, and we'll just stick to praying. You show up at somewhere, and, and you find that something really positive happened, and they're like, oh my goodness, this person received healing, and you're like, oh, praise God, what an answer to prayer. 
And everybody looking at you would then immediately assume you have prayed. But you're, true, you're telling the truth. You're not lying. It is an answer to prayer. Praise God. But you never prayed. Be careful that you don't present yourself as more spiritual than you really are. Because by making a statement like that, unless you would say it this way, praise God, what an answer to someone's prayer. Because I didn't pray. That would be an honest statement. So let's be very careful with how we present ourselves to other people. So I want us to wrestle with this a little bit because I think sometimes if we're not careful in our lives, we can sink into this hypocrisy that we present ourselves as these very, very spiritual beings. We want recognition for something that we haven't actually do excuse me, done. So I want to ask you another question that may at times, or may even be somewhat offensive, I hope it's not. But here's, the, here's, the, here's the really the heart of the question that I'm getting at this morning. Are you faking your Christianity? Dear run, are we faking our Christianity, leading people to become fully devoted followers of Christ? Is that really what you're about? It's easy for me to say it from the stage. It's easy for us to paint it on a wall. It's really easy to write it on a website, put it on brochures. But is this really what we're about? Leading people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. You and I must wrestle with this question. You and I must wrestle with, does Jesus truly have my whole heart? Does Jesus truly, is he truly the Lord of my life the way I tell people that he is? Am I actually fully surrendered to Jesus, or am I faking my Christianity? Whoo! Good to be in church today, isn't it? See, sometimes if we do not ask ourselves these questions, we may become deluded or misguided the way Ananias and his wife were, where they thought that all that mattered was the active action where they thought all that mattered was how people perceived them and they forgot that the holy spirit sees the heart they forgot that the holy spirit is now present dwelling and living within people and that god cannot be fooled they forgot this little part may we never forget that here's the disturbing part are you ready verse five when, when ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Three hours later, remember, great fear seized all who had heard about this, but his wife somehow hasn't yet heard. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Clearly, she's in on the scheme. She and her husband have agreed together to try to pull the wool over the church's eyes. Verse 9, Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, 
The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in. What a day at church, ushers, eh? You know, the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now, it's easy for us to look at this and to say, well, that's a little bit harsh. Or that's a bit graphic. That's a bit, you know, come on, God, where's the grace? Where's the love? But let's consider this. Why is it that we are so willing to accept God's grace without protesting, but we're not willing to even consider his wrath? Why is it that we're so willing to say, oh, God is gracious, God is forgiving, God is compassionate, but then when God shows his wrath, we immediately want to protest and say, that's not, that's not God. It's very possible that this couple has been watching this over and over, and they've been watching people experience God's grace over and over, and they've seen how the church is growing, and they've seen how people are receiving recognition, and they've seen how God is using what people gave, and they're like, you know what? We can exploit this. We can make ourselves look good with, by doing the exact same thing, and their hearts were never in the right place. They only saw the loving God. And they determined that because God is a God of love and a God of grace, that their sin would somehow be overlooked. R.C. Sproul says, We forget that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, not to become bolder in our sins. If Jesus really went through the torment, tormenting hell of the cross to redeem us, and we neglect that in pursuit of our sin, what will it be like to stand before God. We need to understand, and I think that this story helps us and it really drives home the point. This story drives home the point that God is serious about sin. That God does not like sin. You and I may show up here worshiping God, but we have sin in our lives. We have hidden sin in our lives, and we just think that we can dismiss it. But this story points to the fact that God has a very, very strong view of sin. And he hates sin. And it is something that he sent his son Jesus to die for so that we could be free from our sin. And so often we now hide our sin or we neglect our sin or we just push it aside. We compromise thinking that surely God is not that serious about sin. And yet in this story we see just how very serious God takes the sin of people. Verse 11, great fear seized the whole church, and all who heard about these events. It should have. The Greek word for fear here is phobos. And this word means dread, respect, awe, terror, reverence. This is not the kind of fear that drove people away from God. As a matter of fact, this was the kind of fear that drove people to God. If you continue reading in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, you begin to see that more and more women and men came to the church and their number were added to their numbers. This was not the kind of fear that is the kind of fear that we often experience that is driven by insecurity or weakness. This was a holy fear that actually drove people closer to God as they recognized his power. This you know, fear that we have is often associated with something negative. We think that if we have a fear of something, we should remove that and so that the fear would be gone. 
But this kind of fear drove people, it lured people, it, it moved people towards God. And their numbers continued to grow. In Romans chapter 3, Paul outlines the, the fall of mankind and just how mankind is going deeper and deeper into sin. And he says that the chief sin is, you know, he states in Romans chapter 3 verse 18, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. He's outlined how these people have just gone deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. But ultimately at the root of that sin was the fact that these people had no fear of God. They just assumed that everything they did they would get away with. That everything they did would be okay because no one was noticing. And so we need to ask ourselves today and we need to examine ourselves very carefully this morning in view of this event. There's an article in Christianity Today by William Eisenhower. Um, the article is called Fearing God, and he says this. It's a long quote, so let me read it to us. He says, unfortunately, many of us presume that the world is the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset it. How different this is from the biblical position that God is far scarier than the world. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwarranted power, for, it's, for in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce him to the world's equal. And he goes on and says, as I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. He rescues me from my delusions so he may reveal the truth that sets me free. He casts me down only to lift me up. He sits in judgment of my sin but forgives me nevertheless. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is its completion. One more hard question. Has this church, has the modern church, has the North American church, have you lost your fear of God? Are we treating our sin as trivial or as insignificant, thinking that they really aren't that big of a deal or that it may not go unnoticed? I've been reading through the Old Testament and I'm in 2 Kings right now and, and over and over and over you read that these kings did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They did just unimaginable wickedness. You know, it went to the extreme of their sacrificing their own children to, to other gods and these, these, these people were completely, completely deluded. Their minds were just as evil as could be. And I think that if we were honest, we would say that we would never treat God with such contempt. We would never do something that wicked. But like with Ananias and Sapphira, we may be tempted today to think that what we're doing isn't that bad. We may be tempted to somehow feel that we'll get away with this. But my sin compared to someone else's 
isn't really that big of a deal or or maybe the bible doesn't really mean what it says and and maybe this isn't something god would really do because he's gracious and loving and and slowly we begin to excuse our actions we become arrogant in our thinking we begin to think that we can reason away the wrath of god so i invite you today to consider whether you need to repent whether you need to come back before God say let's get real with my sin Psalm 139 it says this verse 23 search me O God and know my heart test me and know my anxious thoughts see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting would you consider this morning, would you consider this morning allowing God to search you? See, if you do the searching yourself, you may be willing to overlook things, or you're going to just search yourself with just guilt. You're just going to make yourself feel guilty. You're just going to beat yourself down. You're just going to treat yourself with, you know, all kinds of like, I'm just a no good person. I'm just nothing. When God searches you, he searches you as someone he loves, as someone he sent his son to die for. He sees you as someone so precious to him. So would you allow him this morning to search you because what he sees is who you really were meant to be. And when he will point things out to you, it will not be just to guilt trip you. It will be to draw you into the place where you want to be with him. So this morning as we sing, I'm just going to invite you to just come up front. There's other pastors here there's elders here there's there's other Christians here but we would like to pray with you and if you need to just maybe spend some time alone this morning and just say God I need to get serious about my sin I want to confess my sin to you I want to open my heart to you God I want to experience this beautiful fear of you that pulls me towards you instead of pushing me away from you so would you come Let's stand. Would you come? If you need this this morning, we just invite all of us, if you need this morning, if you need prayer, would you just come forward and receive this prayer and to pray for yourself and to repent and to ask God to move within you. Please don't, don't just walk away. Don't just leave. Don't just dismiss it. This is your moment. This is your time to allow God to do a work in you. So please come and let's pray together.